Fagan and you're listening to a special episode of The Voice of Insurance, produced in association with Insley. Imagine a world where your brokers and underwriters can design their own insurance products in front of their eyes. A world where you don't wait months for developers to come back to show you things they've built that end up bearing no relationship to what you asked them to do. In this world, if you don't like it, you can just dump it and start again. And in this world, the idea of legacy technology is meaningless. It simply ceases to exist. And in this world, your only development cost is a monthly subscription. Well, it turns out this world is already here, and not many of us know about it. I think you can tell from what I'm saying that today's episode is one that I found incredibly liberating and enlightening to record. I love it when I learn something new, especially when it's something I've been hearing other people talk about for a while, but I've been too busy or perhaps too embarrassed or scared to ask them to explain it to me. The world of no-code software is one of those things I've been hearing about for a few years, but haven't really understood in any detail. So it was brilliant to meet Risto Rossar, CEO of Insley, which is a business that's been producing no-code software for the insurance industry for the best part of a decade. Risto is one of us. He's an insurance guy. His first business was a digital insurance broker he launched around the turn of the millennium. Back then, to do this, you had to create all the tech yourself, because it simply didn't exist. That firm became very successful in the Baltic states and was sold on. But Risto soon realised he was onto something. Scaling brokers globally was hard, but scaling software is a lot easier. He decided that his next venture would be a tech business that helped to digitise the insurance sector. That is how Insley was born. Now it's working with 40 carriers and MGAs and around 4,000 brokers from around the world. Listen on for an inspiring conversation with someone who understands that the only way to unleash real innovation is to liberate insurance folk from the need to learn how to code and allow us to get genuinely creative with insurance for the first time in our history. In our discussion, we also slay a lot of the myths around other tech buzzwords, such as blockchain and the idea of the moment, embedded insurance. Risto is great company and I can highly recommend a listen. You'll learn a huge amount and hopefully end up feeling inspired and invigorated. Enjoy the podcast. Risto, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you for having me. Insley, tell us all about it. How long has it been going? How did you get the idea for it? Insley has been around now for nine years. So idea came so that my first company was a digital insurance broker. So in the year 2000, I established a digital broker in Estonia. That's called Easy. So is it like a price comparison type website, that kind of thing? Yeah, yes, it was a price comparison and it also did all the policy issuing and policy administration. So it wasn't pure price comparison, but it was also uh, actually digital broker, meaning that we issued the policies, we did all the payment collection, we did all the renewals. Price comparison sites just compare the prices and send you to the insurance company website. Yeah. So we, we did like full stack you online. You the Yes, in, indeed. We own the customers, we manage all the renewals, everything. So it was a really digital broker. And of course, in the year 2000, internet sales, we were a bit early with the internet sale, let's say. And then we took the same technology that we built for the internet sales and we used it in other channels. Like we, we made a traditional insurance broker operations more efficient. But we, we even, for example, started to sell insurance in gas stations, embedded insurance in banks and leasing companies. Also, we gave the technology to the traditional brokers to work more efficiently. And that turned out to be the biggest insurance broker in Baltic states. The bad thing with the insurance business or insurance broker business is that it's not really geographically scalable. It's very country specific, right? Yeah. And as we had like the biggest 
business in three very small countries. <laughs> and my restless soul kind of wanted to do something bigger. Then at one point I sold the broker operation and span out uh, the technology and part of it. Presumably because in the year 2000, you had to build all your own technology. Yeah, of then, course, of course. Yeah, exactly. So you became good at the tech side and you thought, well, Yes. This is the business, and that's yes. when Inzi started. That was in, about in, what, nine in, years ago. Yes, in, indeed. So I, I, I never went into technology, right? So it, the technology has always been like the mean to achieve the business goal. And after selling the broker business, I just saw that insurance businesses all over the world were like in a stone age compared to what <laughs> we had built to ourselves, all right? And then I thought that what about just starting to sell the technology to others so that they could become as digital as my own company. Was. I suppose the one thing about technology is compared to, you know, licensed and regulated insurance broking, of course, the technology is completely transferable and global, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. It, it is country agnostic from that point of view. And you don't need to do deals with local insurance companies. You don't need to sell locally. All that is done by our customers, which is to give them the tools to do that more efficiently, right? So you're nine years into this technology only insurance business. What sort of scale have you got up to? We have today around 100 employees. We have over 40 MGAs and insurance companies using our software. And we have over actually 4,000 individual brokers who use our software. Actually, we have two business units. One is a MGA and insurance company software, and the other is insurance broker software. So insurance broker software is pretty much country specific. So I think today we will more focus on that MGA and insurance company software. And that's where we have a bit over 40 customers. And where are your customers spread geographically? The map of Insi customers and probably half of the world is colored orange. So uh, it's pretty much all over. We are focusing very much on the Western world because culturally we can sell Europe, US, Canada. So in these countries, half of our customers are approximately in UK and then half are all over the world. Something that I associate you, you know, if we go to your website, instantly we think about no code. So can you give us a sort of dime store tour of what no code is for people who don't really know what that is? I think it's good to explain it through examples that are understandable for the persons, right? So I think one of the first no code solution was Google Forms, right? When you need to create the form in a website, some time ago, you needed to develop for that. And now you go drag and drop, drop down, do the form oh, yourself. Okay. Then the next step like, is building the websites. Like even now, many companies are building the websites using developers, oh, but, well, but not I, many. I'm doing it. A very small business like mine. There's a lot of but, templates. I just put a bit you, of artwork. You can go fine. to the wix.com and you can yeah. build the website. It's not much more complicated than using Microsoft Word, right? It's, it's simple. No code is when someone like me can actually build the software without developments requirements. So it's, it's like uh, there you can configure it using like the normal language, not the PHP or Java, but you can use the normal mouse or the language to configure the IT systems. And I think that these are the examples of the no-code tools. And now we are bringing the same thing to the insurance, right? So anyone who is literate with computer right, can build insurance products the same way that you, they would use Wix.com to build uh, the website. So it's almost like you can start an effective online proposal form, series of questions, and then turn that into a route that would get someone somewhere. And then you could keep going by, you know, adding their address and sending them a policy or, or whatever, or, you know, the email address yes. and other things. Yes, exactly. And our ultimate goal, I think, would be that if you are a underwriter in the insurance company, for example, and you have the idea, then in principle, you can go to the Inslee website, sign up to the software, and you can just building the insurance company yourself, right? From the quote form until the financial ledger claim, it's just step by step, you build 
and then it's ready and you don't need like any meaningful IT budget for that. I think we are not like fully there, but I think we are on a way that let's say any innovative mindset insurance people can build everything. Uh, so yes, yeah, so, so it's just turning things into almost visual representations that you yes. can drag around and yes. say, well, if I put the quoting yes. over here and the yes. pricing over there and then the contact Correct. bit over here and Correct. then the customer service button, there was the claim system yes. built in. Another jargon-busting thing I want to ask you is about low-code. When people talk about no-code, you can see, yeah, there is no code. You just pick up objects and move them mm -hmm. around mm -hmm. and, and turn them into a process. What do we mean by low-code? That mm -hmm. means, presumably, means it's sort of like a hybrid. You have to know a bit of computing. You have to know a bit of yeah. computer language to yeah. make it work. Is that what it is? You need to know the computer anyway, right? So yeah. even to the drag-and-drop, you need to be able to power off the computer and do something. But like in my understanding, the difference there that no code is like really drag and drop, right? Low code, you are configuring the system. You need to read like the JSON file. JSON file is in text file. So it's like, you don't need to code like directly PHP, but you, some things you are just kind of configuring in the text file. You don't need to know that programming language, but you probably need, let's say a few weeks of training, right? To learn the basic things and, and then you can do that. So it's a- uh, JSON is this file that you work in. No, JSON is just a standard language what configures the- like. The it's one of these uh, industry standard languages that has been agreed by- it's, 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 it's a file format. It's uh, like XML, right? It's uh, uh, something like that. You, you, there's a structure where what defines some things in the system. So it's- yeah. uh, and When uh, you said PHP, what, do you know what that stands for? I know PHP is a program. It's like Java, PHP. I don't know what this is, but it's, yeah, it's, so it's a language. Core it, computer language. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> right. Okay. Example of programming language. So, yeah, but low code means that you can break up the system, right? When it's no code, then it's really kind of, you know, drag and drop. You cannot do anything wrong with the low code. You can get things wrong, right? So you need to know the structure. You need to have a necessary training to do it correctly. But you don't need to be a developer, right? You need some literacy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Otherwise, you're going to spell it wrong and that's going to exactly. be no good. Exactly, okay. exactly. You're working across brokers, MGAs, and carriers. So in what part of that insurance process, of that value chain, of that sales process, and that customer journey, where's the core part where you're adding the most value? When your customers are really getting hold of this, they're saying, wow, where do they use it? I'm presuming they use it in the front end when they're first getting in front of a customer and how to capture that customer quickly and efficiently. Is that right? Or are they using it further down the chain, you know, in claims process, for example? Where the no-code revolution started and where you see actually the biggest, like, wow effect is clearly on a goat and pine side. So building the forms, building really fast policy documents and underwriting rules, like being able to do all the tariff changes online. When you show that part of the system, then it's like, great, oh, that's really cool, right? It's, uh, you can feel that. But where actually the complexities, or when, when you actually like rubber hits the road and you start trading with your IT system, in that case, you need to do the invoicing, you need to do the financial ledger, you need to do the reporting to the insurance companies, and sometimes you need to do the claims as well, right? And I think that's where actually the biggest complexities, there are a lot of no-code solutions on a quote and bind side. Because you actually don't need to know a lot about insurance to create a form, document, calculation engine. So that's simple. But when you need to get the finances and reporting correct, and, and when you need to do midterm adjustments, and if you think about the insurance policy, right, very often there are, let's say, maybe three, four risks on the insurance policy, maybe three, four objects on the insurance policy, and then it could be underwritten by three carriers, right? And then you need to split that premiums 
like slice it differently. And the insurance premium of like a few thousand pounds could have uh, hundreds of data so that you could do reports based on objects, based on risks, based on the insurance companies. And now when the meter adjustment comes in, you need to like recalculate everything. I think that's actually what is pretty complex. And there is not too many no-code providers who can do quote and bind and all that finance part in the same system. I think that's where I think we stand out quite a lot from the market. When you are the MGA and you want to do the new IT system, then you could be a little bit fooled because like that front end is coming really fast, right? And you think, okay, I will solve that finances thing later, right? But solving it later is like, you know, building the house and changing the foundation afterwards. It's pretty difficult, right? So if you get the structure wrong and usually it ends up so that they recruit a lot of people get the data together because that's hard. So I think that's where I would say the industry has done a big step forward in a quote and bind side, but having end-to-end systems, there are not many who actually can do that on a no-code level, So, but we can. And your core classes that your customers are currently applying your technology in, is it on the consumer level or small and medium-sized business, commercial combined kind of products, that kind of thing? We do all non-life products, so starting from the retail products until like aviation and oil rigs. And so. But you can get best benefit out of the IT system when you have, let's say, low premium and high volume business, because that's when you actually really need IT. So when you do three policies a month, you know, you can do these in Excel pretty fine, right? So, uh, yeah. but from the system point of view, we have built hundreds of non-life insurance products. So we don't do life, but in non-life, we do all the products. doesn't really matter. And so in terms of how high up this could go up the value chain, a lot of my listeners are in specialty and in reinsurance and global classes like that. Presumably you're saying you could be relevant to them as well. For the specialty lines, of course, as I said, no, we do oil rigs, we do aviation, we do toothbrushed, integrated insurance. We don't do reinsurance. So reinsurance is something that I personally don't know a lot about. And I think in reinsurance, I could be wrong, but my feeling is that all the transactional complexity is actually happening on a main insurance level, right? So reinsurance just gets the high level numbers. And I think there could be some no good tools for the reinsurance companies as well, but just not my expertise, right? So if, if some listeners of yours is from reinsurance, then happy no, to discuss, no, but, but, but I don't is, know. Yes. If you know insurance, you know reinsurance. In the end, it's just, it, it, it just uh, the person buying the insurance happens to be an insurance company already. And the, obviously you you tend to be covering a whole portfolio yes. or a very large risk, which is almost some of the facultative risks, of course, are almost like whole portfolios in themselves. If it's for mm. a very large multinational corporation, that has got hundreds and thousands of buildings all over the world and it's a property program, then obviously it is quite complex. What's the potential for no code, do you think? At the moment, what kind of penetration have you got into the industry? It's a relatively new thing. It's not new for you. I know you've been around for quite a while and you've been pioneering a lot of this. How much more potential do you think you've still got to go in terms of, do you have a rough idea of how many of the customers, potential customers out there still haven't really done anything in the no code arena Mm -hmm. who could do? Mm -hmm. Of course, I don't know because statistical office is not measuring that uh, that important social parameter. <laughs> in your own field, you think you've <laughs> but, got a long way, you've got a but, lot more um, avenues open yeah, to yeah. you in terms yeah. of potential. But, 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 but in general, of course, it's that say 99% of insurance world is still trading on uh, old systems and then the no code is just being experimented by some guys. And uh, so, yeah, it's a huge potential. I actually don't see any reason why uh, all of the insurance market shouldn't be working with a no-code solution, or maybe to even put it differently, I think, what is coding, right? Coding in principle is giving to the computer the instructions, 
what to do, right? And I think it's like two things are happening. No code tools develop and then people like young generation is getting much more literate. So they, they learn programming already in the school, right? So I would even say that soon we all are able to code. Coding will be like language, right? So it's, it becomes much simpler. Let's take the example of probably you have tested that chat GPT uh, yeah, thing, yeah, right? Yeah. Now, uh, you know, that chat GPT is mind blowing, right? And that has at the moment 175 billion parameters. The next version will have 5 trillion. It's 600 times more, right? And already the current version is mind blowing. We cannot imagine how simple coding will be in three to five years. So from that point of view, I'm pretty certain that building the IT systems in the future, you don't need developers. Developers are only doing maybe something on a really root level, right? And also bigger insurance companies are getting more used to that. So they, they will allow small ones to do the testing, right? So they will come in a bit later. I suppose it's a bit like at some point in the future, my grandchildren probably, it would never occur to them that they would need to learn to drive. Won't okay. To, if, if I would say you today, <laughs> I will send you a mail after that podcast, you know, confirming that, you know, it's all good. How do you hear it? Will you wait for the envelope to come uh, tomorrow? Yeah, <laughs> Probably yeah. not. Actually, you would expect email, right? Yes. But E is gun from the language, right? Yeah. And I think it's the same with, uh, now we imagine coding is something, you know, like really tech. No, it's like quite soon coding is just interacting with a computer, maybe using the verbal language. Please configure me the IT system that sells marine insurance in Canada. And, and let it look exactly like that MGA has. Add PayPal payment functionality. So you're looking at the screen, you're looking yes. and saying, don't do yes. it like that. Oh, can you do it like this? Yes. Can you make it blue now? Yes. Can you do this? And we are not too far away. At the moment in Inslee, there is configurator between that. I can already imagine so that you talk to the microphone and system is configuring. Of course, we might be two, three years away from maybe five, maybe 10, because we cannot really estimate the speed of the technological development. But when someone's going to approach no code for the first time, how do they need to change their thinking? I think the first thinking is so that traditionally how people approach the IT development is that they write the specification, they describe what the IT system should do. Right. And then they give a task to development company or someone. And after five months, two months, something comes back and it's okay. Actually, that's not what I wanted. That wasn't, it looks like pretty much different of my imagination, what I described here, right? With a no code, you see what you get, right? So in principle, you, you skip that specification part. You in principle are in the same room with the configuration specialist. You are describing, you know, put it here, put it here, and it's kind of being built in front of your eyes. And that's going to remove all that time and financial investment. And then you actually feel, you can, you can have an online feedback loop. And even the other thing is that what we tell to our customers that actually before you pay us any meaningful amount of the money, right? But you already see the system, right? If, if someone sells you the no-code solution and say you will get it in three months, then it's actually not the no-code. We are able in a customer demo meetings and sales meeting to already show them the system. And, and that's paradigm exactly. So it becomes much more friendly. You feel that you are actually controlling that, right? It's not IT company who is controlling that or a developer. It's you. You know that you can change it pretty easily. I think that's the main difference, right? Well, that's really interesting because one of the other things I'm sure that anyone approaching IT, they come with almost a negative sense and the kind of defensive sense. They were thinking, Obviously, I've got my old green screen legacy server stuff, which I've finally kind of put on the cloud. And now they're always going to come to 
new technology with an idea of this is going to be the old technology of the future. <laughs> what I mean, and so am I creating new legacy? It sounds like what you're saying is it won't matter because it sounds like in this future where you can build new software all the time without having to think about it, legacy won't be relevant anymore because you can change everything. All the yes, time. exactly. That's the difference. Let's compare it to the office, right? There's two options. You buy the office or you rent the office. So if you rent the office, if you don't want to work here anymore, you move to a new office. And with uh, SaaS solutions, it's kind of the same. You, you don't have 10, 20 million investment in your balance sheet and then you are kind of sunk cost and uh, you kind of need to live with that for the next five years until it's amortized. No, it's like it's an Inslee customer or any other no-code solution customer is not happy with us anymore. They can go in principle tomorrow, let's say they pay us, you know, 7,000 a month, then that cost is off. They go to our competitor. And also the software is constantly developing. So when I describe the future of no code, right, any SaaS solution shouldn't get obsolete when the company is developing further, right? So we, we are under the pressure to constantly be the best on the market because if after five years, someone is 10 times better than we, then customers uh, just go away because uh, switching the IT system with the future no code solutions will be easier and easier with a uh, old system. It's like, it's very hard to change the IT. Even if you are completely unhappy with your IT system, then stuck with it, you are stuck with that and you don't really believe that someone can do it better, right? The other IT guy comes in, oh, I can do it better. And then you kind of, probably it's the same, right? And no code thing is going to, it just takes that friction away. Uh, let's take that website example. So when building the website is really easy, then you can just go to the new platform and build the website and here you go. But when you have some developers and someone you are not in control, but developers are in control. But when you can do it yourself, then you are in control. And that that data is fully transferable and easily switched from one place to another. You don't say anything, oh goodness, am I going to lose all this customer data? Yeah, of course, with the critical customers, we have all the data backed up in our customer servers as well. So like that, that's the business continued. As it, we are the core system, right? So if you are going to the cloud, or is it no code, low code, doesn't really matter, but you should think this way that someone else is holding your data. So you need to make sure that whatever happens, you can get the data, right? There is a likelihood that things will disappear, right? So we, I think our customers, if we, for some reason disappear, so they have the data so they can, okay, it's maybe not so easy, but though it's in our cloud, but they can access all the data and, and they have it. So yeah, of course. I just remembered, we should probably clear up an abbreviation to use their SaaS being software as a service. And that's mm -hmm. basically what we really mean is things that are on a cloud, uh, things that you're renting, that they're being updated constantly, and they're not sitting in some box in the corner of your office anymore. They are on the internet, they're up in the cloud, as we'd say. Yes, they're usually in AWS or Google Cloud or somewhere like that. So, You mentioned you work with brokers. So what's the big difference between your sort of your broker systems, your carrier systems? What are the main differences? The main difference is the broker system actually is not no code, and it actually doesn't have to be, because insurance brokers, if they are selling or intermediating standard products of insurance companies on that market, then the software is exactly the same for everyone because all the product building is yeah. done on the insurance company side. So on a broker side, Inslee broker software is not on a no code level because that's not needed. Other things are important there because we are not configuring the products for the broker because brokers, unless the broker is acting like MGA, but in that case, they already have the MGA software, but yeah, insurance broker software, is, it's a different animal. If you're a business owner and you're looking at your systems, how do you know when it's time to upgrade them? 
with a car, it's kind of obvious. It's sort of, you can see the latest thing. You know, when I bought my last car, you know, I'm way behind everybody. I wanted certain things that had happened since the last car and that it was power steering and aircon. I wanted both of those things. It's hard to believe now every car has power steering, but I didn't have power steering on this really old car I had. And, you know, the next car I wanted power steering. And now I'm sure I would like to have the thing where it automatically parks itself because I think, you know, that would go down really well. Parking in London is quite hard. Parallel parking, not everyone's very good at it. And, you know, I'd love that. You just press the button, it parks itself. And whatever, I'm sure eventually I would like the option where it just drives me to work and I don't have to do anything. How does a CEO know that their own insurance system isn't really up to date anymore? What are the latest things that it probably needs that it would be an easy way of finding out that you're behind the times? One of the test questions could be that in the current IT system, am I able to automate all the processes end-to-end, right? So policy, sales, financing, payments, claims, you don't necessarily need to automate everything, but, you know, does it support it? In some cases, if you see that your current system, for some reason, is not enabling that, then you can assume that someone is doing it better than you. Is it urgent problem to solve? Probably no, because if you are, let's say, a big company with a good brand, with a nice team, you know, you can handle that maybe for one, two, five, ten years. Like it's, it's not like you need to automate everything. You don't. But I think that that's kind of, you know that, you know, you are not best in the technology. But being, let's say, 70, 80% level is okay as well. But maybe like comparing to your car example, then I think with the IT is a little bit different because car, you usually need to change like once, you know. You, you don't upgrade your car engine and now add the power steering and it's, it's just, you change it. <laughs> with the IT system, I think we have been advocating quite a lot so that you actually don't need to change your IT system completely. Let's eat that cake in small bites. Let's take one product. Let's move that completely to the new platform. Because if you have a big business to run, you know, let's kind of, let's not break that down. Let's move the least important product on the Enzi platform. And then you see how it's going. Are you comfortable with that? You can feel out how the system works. And then if you're happy, we take another product. And then we take another. And then maybe after one year or three years, all of your products are moved away. I think because then you are not disrupting the business. But when you move the product, then you try to move it like end to end from the sales until everything is automated. I think that's kind of a reasonable approach to look at that. I see those Teslas parked in my road. I know, yes, it's not modular. I couldn't suddenly, obviously with my old car, you see, I, can, I know I can't install the smart self-driving modular part of it because I don't think it has any of the infrastructure that would support that. So I know I definitely need to get the Tesla style car to do that. And, and with the, but at least with the software, you can do it in a more modular and less painful way. You cannot upgrade your legacy system, so that's hard, right? So, but when you move your product to the Inzi or any of our good competitors, then that system acts like a Tesla, right? So it, it's on a certain level today, but when we build new features, then you will get these as well. And they'll sort of download automatically, won't they? Yeah. There is even no download. It's just, yeah, it, it's just, it just be there, if you log in, then it, their new features are, are there. So again, it's like, it's a different thing. Your software is constantly being kept on a market level. And, and that's why like that SaaS fee or the rent that you pay for the software, it's not only as it is now, but it's also like including all the future upgrades of that. You're a really interesting entrepreneur in our sector the last 20 years you've, you've been doing this. And it was interesting reading up about you that you were involved in a blockchain insurance venture. And that didn't work out, but it's good that you're able to fast fail something in this world. It would be interesting to find out why it didn't work or why it didn't get traction. Maybe it did work and it just didn't get traction and no one bought mm. it. 
because obviously four or five years ago, we were talking about blockchain, this blockchain, that, and we assumed that it would be become core to our administration as an industry. But I'd love to have your mm-hmm. view on why it didn't work out. Yeah, that was on the times when, you know, I think you remember these ICO booms, right? The blockchain came and then a lot of ICOs, a lot of money was there. And I had some kind of like really interesting revelation. I even like remember where it was. I was, I think, sitting on a floor of the bathroom and, thing, and I just tried to write that. And then, then, I, then I wrote like, in principle, the business model of, in principle, like Lloyd's of London on blockchain, right? So if, if you think about the insurance, then insurance is like, if you simplify it to the first principles, then you have a capital and you have a risk, right? So you should, insurance is mechanism, uh, connecting capital to the risk. Yes. Now, and like all the friction that is between seemed like so crazy for me. And what Lloyd's of London does, it does exactly the same thing, but it does it in a really old way, right? So now you can take the blockchain technology, issue tokens. Tokens would be like insurance linked securities that are representing certain risk pools. And then you have MGAs or syndicates who are like taking the risks and then like the reward is then given to these token holders. It's pretty hard to explain it shortly, but that was the concept, like Lloyds of London on blockchain. Now, why it didn't succeed? Many reasons. First reason was that ICO boom ended before we raised the money. So you can imagine that doing something like that is a really high risk project that requires meaningful amount of money. We thought maybe the market is, has given now the blockchain and a lot of money that wants to take big risks, right, on the ICO time. Then we said, okay, let's try it out. But the ICO boom ended before we managed to go to the market with that idea. And now looking like retrospectively to that, and after studying like thousands of hours of blockchain afterwards, I would say, in reality, you don't need blockchain to do that, right? So because uh, in insurance, there is so many central points of failure. First of all, you need a license. Secondly, you need to collect the money. Someone should make a claims decision. You need to trust so many small or big central authorities, but the blockchain is actually all about decentralization, right? So you can do maybe, let's say, some crypto insurance when you kind of, even then, claim payout to someone should do the claim payout decision. And whenever there is a central point of failure, then most likely, It's blockchain technology. It's not a perfect technology. It's very slow. It's expensive to develop and there are transaction fees, right? So if you don't need the completely decentralized system, then you can use a SQL data, normal database. database Exactly. If if you need to trust anyway, then you can do even building that same case. I could build it on a normal technology the same way. So from that point of view, I think blockchain was a, I mean, remember the stories then, you know, Bitcoin is bad. But the blockchain technology, that's really cool. I think everyone, that statement is completely wrong because if, like centralized authorities don't need blockchain, period. Yeah. I've used the example of putting the banana on blockchain. So you have an idea. I want to put the banana on blockchain. <laughs> you divide the banana into 100 tokens. Each represents 1% of the banana. It's a really great idea. You, know, can, you can trade these tokens and, you know, when the banana value goes up, then your token value increases. It's a really solid case, right? And in that sentence, you can replace banana with insurance, real estate, a company revenues, anything. It's still banana. Who in a world, you need someone to validate whether the banana still exists. If the banana doesn't exist anymore, everything kind of breaks down, right? And there's only one asset that doesn't have that banana problem. So that's Bitcoin. And when you understand the difference of Bitcoin and banana on blockchain, then you get the point, right? And all kind of blah, blah, blah stories. We do that blockchain stuff. It seems complicated and smart, but actually many of them are 
It's something that's consumable. It, once it's gone, it's gone, isn't it? It doesn't really matter. Yes, indeed. And adding blockchain to the formula doesn't make banana somehow to be uh, there. <laughs> so right. it was it was kind of a, a solution wandering around looking for a problem in insurance, and there wasn't really a problem that suited indeed, it. Indeed. I think it's in, in insurance, let's say, let's like solve like transactions between insurance companies. Let's use blockchain for that transaction efficiency. But come on, you can do it in any other, because these parties need to trust each other anyway. So it's, uh, they are central parties and they just need the IT to make it more efficient. And blockchain is a complicated, expensive, and a good fact is that blockchain technology existed much more earlier than Bitcoin. No one has found any use case for that, right? It's like, it was a technology, like pretty cool thing to do, but no one found any use case for that. And when Bitcoin came, that was the first use case. Yeah. And I would say that's almost the only real use case for blockchain so far. Maybe something else is being created, but like all in all, it, these are all bananas on blockchain. So that's uh, it's cool. <laughs> From blockchain, for the, you know, the buzzword of 2016, 2017, should we say, um, which has slowly diminished since then. Everyone's talking about embedded insurance. In fact, you mm -hmm. mentioned embedded insurance in the context of something we were doing 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. What do you think about that? And, you know, should we be preparing ourselves to be embedding insurance into everything? It well, probably means a lot of different things to different people as well. Yeah, what do you mean I think so. That? I think so. I think uh, when the embedded insurance word came and everyone talked, it's like really kind of new thing. Then I thought, well, what's, what's new there? Embedded insurance has been around as far as I have been in insurance world. Inslee does many embedded insurance projects, and I think it's, like, it's a good thing. But embedded insurance is usually profitable for the insurance company usually profitable for the distribution channel and it's usually very bad deal for the end customer right yes it's a really bad deal you know as a former insurance professional i can see instinctively that the kind of the mobile phone insurance that i'm being sold or the extended indeed. warranty you know that indeed. they're bad deals indeed. you know that it's a bad deal why first of all it's expensive right the transaction costs are pretty high everyone wants to get the cake of that and it's really expensive right it's not expensive from the pounds or euros term. It's, it's cheap, but when you understand the logic, then you're paying like seven times more than actually the risk uh, cost is. Secondly, very often you don't remember that you have that. If you buy a sofa from the shop, then after two years you have the accident. Probably you don't remember that the sofa had that embedded insurance included. So yeah, yeah. you forget about it. Third thing is that very likely it is insured by some other insurance policy as well. Most likely that so far has the, your home insurance is covering it anyway. Yeah. Maybe not extended warranty, but these are the three cases what's usually not good deal for the customer. And I think to illustrate that the oldest embedded insurance solution what everyone has used is a car rental insurance, right? Yeah. And it's a complete ripoff, right? So you can buy the annual insurance with the cost of five days. If, if you rent the car like two times a year, it's actually cheaper to buy annual coverage. And yeah. usually some credit cards are covering it free of charge. And that's like an illustration of what actually embedded insurance is. There are some exceptions. I think credit card embedded insurance, it's pretty good. I think uh, that's a good value when you know how to use it. That for the consumer, that's good. Then also when you are kind of buying the car and then leasing companies are embedding it pretty good. But what they are experimenting at the moment, you know, you go to the travel, buy the travel insurance, you buy the mobile phone. But it's like, as they are usually bad, deals for the end customer, then my thought process is that like at the end of the day, customers should win, right? So at the end of the day, I don't know how long you can cheat customer with that.
I'm stronger believer in like holistic insurance policy that is covering everything, right? Uh, you know that you have one insurance policy, it covers, I'd say, sofas and your travel and your mobile phones. It's like, you know, that that covers everything, but that's much more difficult to do. So your advice would be that you can embed insurance in everything and presumably some of your technology is going to make it really easy to yeah, do that. Of course. But you should think more about why you should be doing it and, and make sure that the customer wins at the end of the day, that you give them a fantastically good value. Mm -hmm. If I went to the car hire desk and they said, I know it's got a 1,000 euro deductible on this policy, but it was four euros or whatever it was. If it was actually 12 euros to, to take it away, then, then I'd buy it. But when they say it's 120, which is about 50% of what the actual car rental has already cost me anyway, I, mm. I never quite get my head around it. Mm. As you can see that there's obviously someone's earning 50, 60% commission along this chain and, mm. and it's not making a huge amount of sense. So that would be your main thought. But otherwise, but in it, terms of doing it, the actual execution of it is actually quite simple. I can be critical from the customer point of view, but that's not my job as the IT provider, right? So if someone comes to us, we have a great technology with that. We do many embedded insurance projects and some of them are good. Value. As you asked in the beginning, what is the definition of embedded insurance? So it's like when some embedded insurance startups are looking at more, let's say, that they sell you insurance somehow better. And it's, like, it's, it's a very wide definition. So if you never know what they mean by that. So, so uh, is it fair to say it's, you didn't go to buy insurance, you went to buy something else and you ended up getting insurance included in the package. Yes, I think that that's my perception of embedded insurance, but you have different interpret. I think, I think when I'm talking about that's not a good deal for customers and I think it's not a good deal to sell insurance with a sofa, insurance with a mobile phone. These are usually not good value offerings, but there are some cases where it could work. So if you look at embedded insurance this way, that you make it easier for the customer to buy insurance somehow, then it's fine. That's what we want to do. We want the sales process to be really convenient, assuming that you sell to the customer good value product. But unfortunately, most of the embedded insurance products that I face as a customer, knowing insurance, I just see that they are kind of trying to. It'd be great if you got price comparison at that point of sale. You know, when you go into that car hire desk and say, you can have this one, this one's 12, this one's 13, and, and this one's 11. Which but one but you usually they are really cheap anyway. So it's like the, the price point is uh, very low and the loss ratios of most of the embedded insurance products are like 20, 30%, right? So it's slow, right? And when you have that so high distribution fee or the transactional, so then it's like you are spending most of the money on not insurance coverage. So I think that's bad. So optimally it should be, let's say 70%, right? So it's fair deal. At 70% loss ratio for the customer is fair deal. You know, it's value, yeah. Yes, it's value. And well, before we close up, what's the main plan for Insley this year? What are your main objectives this year and where do you think you're going to be getting? This year, I think all in all, we want to digitize insurance businesses and make the technology affordable and accessible for insurance businesses. This year, we want to do the same thing. And last two years, we have invested a lot into product, right? I think maybe this year is the year where we go more, when we put more effort to the go-to-market and explaining what it is, because it's no point to build a product when only you know about yeah, that. Yeah, and if people <laughs> want to get in touch, what's the best way of contacting you? Obviously, you, you've got a website. Yeah, go to got... the website or look me up from the LinkedIn. Uh, I think that's probably uh, too... Uh, well, we'll make sure we have all the links at the end yeah. of the podcast. But I'd say... I've, I've come to the, the end of all my questions. I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you. You can see the passion coming through. I'm sure. So, you know, your business model is to get people hooked on the no-code sort of revolution. They can, once they can start building insurance products and seeing them in front of their face, then 
presumably they're never going to go back, are they, once they've done this? Um, yeah, indeed. And that comment is triggered one more thought in me. What's going to unleash the innovation in the insurance world? Like at the moment, the technology is accessible to only 5-10% of the insurance businesses, the big ones, right? But these big guys are not really innovative. They are risk averse. They do their business. Yeah. But when you think when actually innovation happens in the world, let's take that, you know, you have a mobile phone, iPhone, Android. When you build the iPhone and you make it open for everyone to build apps on that. Yes. So if all the apps in the iPhone would have been built by Apple, I think we wouldn't have seen that innovation. You should give the tool to the developers or the guys who want to build, and then you create that innovation. You start the innovation super cycle, let's call it this way. And in insurance, the same way. That's kind of what we actually so almost, want to achieve, right? Some they should buy the system and then actually just open it out to all their employees. Uh, you know, to, at least to no, insurance no, professionals no, and no. say, why don't you just create your own product and then show me at the end of the week what you've done? Yeah, yeah, yeah. As an underwriter of, of the insurance company, you just kind of want to play around, you kind of go there, you start building. At that one point, you go to the boss. Oh, by the way, I built that insurance company here, right? It's all online, everything is there, and I, I just need the capacity, like, all done. And there's like, I haven't spent anything. I just paid, you know, 500 euro subscription fee to play around with that. You can compare it also to cloud computing, right? So when before the servers were only available for the big companies, right? But when Google and Amazon made the cloud, then like two, three people teams are able to build globally scalable solution with a zero initial investment. And then when you look at the budgets, so let's take the MJs, there is an idea, let's create the MJ. Like two thirds or half of the budget historically has been, you know, we need the IT. You remove that, like uh, you don't need that anymore. And I think that's what we want to achieve, right? Like just that's going to be so much more iterative and so yes. much quicker as well, yes. because you can just, if you see something doesn't work, you just dump it. Yes, indeed, indeed. You enable these guys to start developing. And that's when we start seeing innovation insurance, finally, maybe. Well, that's a really good place to end. Thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you for having me. And uh, I hope you will have more fun podcasts on the way. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you very much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this programme. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com.